0: Hey, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? This is your host, Nico And Irvin, and this is Shining Spotlight, the stream where we highlight creatives in the industry in order to inspire you guys. Today, we have an extremely multi-gifted manga creator in our uh, presence. She published many works such as The Dreaming in the early 2000s, written various different stories out there, and most recently, Fabled Kingdom, which is a work that she has out there now more recently. Uh, some of some actually even give her the moniker of Australia's first internationally published manga artist. Today, we welcome one of the pioneers of the early OEL manga scene, the great Queenie Chan. Thank you so much for joining. Thank us. Thank you for bro. coming on, Queenie Chan. And hey, thank you for having me. You know, we're we're so happy to see you here today because we, obviously we have a lot of questions about things, and you know, we just honestly want to like you know just know more about like you know your journey as like a manga creative like would you mind like briefly just kind of just telling us a little bit about like i guess you know what made you get started on actually like creating manga Mm -hmm. you know like like just kind of just a brief condensed version of that if you can
1: Sure, like my story is a little bit stereotypical. I grew up in Hong Kong and came to Australia when I was six years old, migrated with my family. And uh, being a typical Asian family, they didn't really encourage me to draw or pursue any kind of artistic stuff because they think that, um, you know, artists don't really make much money, which is true, you know, unfortunately. And so they kind of encouraged me into other kinds of uh, areas. So in high school, I didn't really draw very much except for school projects. Can't say I enjoyed the drawing process an awful lot as well, but um, I went into computing studies and that was supposed to be my career but apart from doing my uh, regular studies is that I also uh, picked up a habit of reading manga way back from Hong Kong so even when I was a toddler I was reading a lot of manga and that habit didn't stop when I came to Australia Uh, I would go to Chinatown and buy lots of manga so I kept up with the latest releases that way so I guess when I got into university uh, I didn't really enjoy it and university didn't turn out the way I thought it would so uh, I struggled a little bit and so my way of escaping from my studies was to start drawing manga and strangely enough, it was specifically a manga called Kenshin* that was really popular back yep. in the day. And I was reading volume 17 of that. And I remember that specific moment. It's like, you know, you're reading a your manga and like, hey, I could do this. You know, I could like get a blank piece of paper and do some manga myself too. I don't know what it was that triggered that thought in my head, but that was how it started. And throughout university, I spent about three or four years. I think I took half a year off so a bit longer than most for my information systems degree. I uh, started to draw stuff just as a way of stress relief and get away from what I was was happening. And I started making up my own stories. I've always had a lot of stories on my own. You know, I would read stories and make stories up in my head, but never really try to write it down or do it in manga. And when I started creating my own original stories, um. I started putting it online as well because back then, because I was doing a um, information systems degree, I was online twenty four seven anyway because it was the early fledgling days of the internet. And I uh, don't know whether you guys were on it, but um, like nineteen ninety seven, the internet was like fifty percent anime manga. Seriously, no <laughs> joke. <What a laughs> and so 19- I actually, yeah, yeah, totally. And um, it's strange as it sounds. Dial up modem, you know, it takes like an hour to load a JPEG, you know, that kind of speed. Yeah. But um, it was clear to me that for me. My manga uh, reading habits was uh, a secret that I kept from my friends because I was the only one who was into it at my girls' school. And so, uh, for me, discovering the internet was like, you know, there's all these like-minded people out there that I could share my work with. Yeah, so I would say that's how it all started. And I couldn't, I can't, I can't understate the importance of just discovering the internet in the early days of the internet and what it played on, you know, my perception of myself and the things that I should like so on so that's how it all got started
0: okay no that was quite a bit you know it's it's interesting like um you know i know you mentioned like you know and i actually even you know read this like how a lot you know your friends you know back then you know they weren't really like you know involved or like interested in manga you know in the same way so like did anybody like encourage you like to kind of keep pushing like i know your parents were very you know like encouraging at least from you know what i um i read you know i don't know Oh, (laughs) no,
1: I because I was so embarrassed about what I was doing. I was drawing manga, but I kept it a secret. So my whole family knew something was going on. You know, mm, they knew okay. what I was doing. I mean, they kind of snuck it. I'm sure they snuck into my room and checked out what I was drawing. But we didn't really talk about it because it, it was clear to them that I wanted to keep it a secret. So it wasn't until I graduated in 2002, right in the middle of a dot-com bust, where I couldn't find a job as a programmer. And there was it looks like it wasn't going to happen on the horizon. Uh, my two other friends who graduated in the same year as I. Everyone else graduated a bit earlier. Um, they took two years to even find a job. So when I was just finished graduating, I was like, what do I even want to do with my life? I didn't enjoy my degree. It was in the middle of a, a complete bust, the industry. So I started looking for ways to get professionally published. And um, I can't say my parents were unsupportive during that time. They were more probably more worried about my mental health. You know, they didn't know. Mm-hmm. It was clear that I was really depressed and I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have no There was no map. There was no roadmap. Like, how do you even get... Published. I mean, going to Japan with some kind of pipe dream. My Japanese isn't good enough. Like, uh, it's not like you can just say, "I'm going to go to Japan," and then you know they're going to accept me. It's like it's something that is a dream you have in high school and in university afterwards. uh, Reality hits, and you realize that it's just a dream. So I had no idea what was what I was going to do, and that was um, my parents supported me mentally during that time, even though
0: they were still very skeptical about the whole drawing thing. (laughs) They just wanted to make me feel better. So did they, I'm like, just, you know, for clarification, so like did they, were they more interested in basically going to like programming, that type of thing, since you used to be, you know, more like, you know, work like on programming and, you know, and that sort of thing, like when you went to school, was that more of like what they were, what they were pushing for?
1: Well, not really for them, um, because the thing is, I've always worked for the family business since I was a teenager, um, Mm because my parents don't speak great English, so I did a lot of the administration stuff. Uh, for our company, and I still do, and I'm um, doing the encounter stuff like that a little bit of management. So I've always done that. And so they were probably saying, thinking that I, if I, whatever I was trying to do didn't work out, then I have some kind of backup plan that they could provide me. So, uh, but they still want me to be happy, you know, and they were very skeptical about the whole, you know, publishing thing. is like, well, who are you going to get published by? <laughs> and that, that was the, the question mark. It's like Australia doesn't actually have any comics in its uh, bookstores. Uh, at that time, America was being invaded by manga thanks to the efforts of uh, Tokyo Pop, and that was doing yeah. very well. But that trend hadn't caught on in Australia. So if you go to a bookstore, it's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, except for Kinokuniya, which is a Japanese bookstore that we have one of in Sydney, and that's in the middle of the city. Yeah, so people know about that, but uh, that's kind of like a – it's not really a typical bookstore. The big chain bookstore in Australia still is is Dimmick's. You know, yeah, so nice. uh, Dimmix and uh, Dimmix still does not sell that many manga slash comics. It's still, that has got like afraid kind of it. a the Yeah, it's, it's 2022, you know, they should get into it. <laughs> right. But the truth is that um, there's other discount bookstore chains that are actually doing much better at selling um, comics than dimix is. I mean, when something is um, old school and set in its ways and they don't have the money to make changes and then that that's it. They'll just see the market to other
0: people and that's what... Uh,
1: the bookstore situation in Australia is like.
0: No, interesting. Now, before we kind of move into some of these other questions that we have here, just want to really quickly, of course, uh, we have some comments that came through. So I just want to, you know, Mm -hmm. address them really quick. We have from Midnight Cross, yay. (laughs) Um, Imagine those TV, great story. Great story. Um, I was absolutely there in 97. And then we have from Jeff Lilly, You know, uh, being based in Australia, how did you adapt to drawing everything upside down? Sorry, I couldn't resist. Australia is awesome.
1: Oh, thanks. (laughs) I think we
0: do everything upside down here. So adapting to drawing upside down is very easy. Corny joke. (laughs) Um, Midnight Cross, again, you know, um, as a fellow Australian, I really admire your story. Thanks for inspiring me.
1: Well, thanks very much. Um, I would like to talk more about the uh, the magazine in Australia and where, where that's heading, even though it's very different to the rest of the world. I think Australia, unfortunately, is a bit behind in, in many ways, but, uh, you know, we've got a chance to talk about that later on, what I think should change. Yeah, we could do that if we have time.
0: And then we have from Ray Hama, Peace Brothers. Hey, what's up, Ray Hama? Okay. All right, let's get back into everything, shall we? So, I'm curious about, like, obviously the Dreaming, because that was the the, the premiere, like, book that you went with when you, um, that you submitted with Tokyo Pop. You mm-hmm. know, and, and obviously we have it right there. We can actually throw uh, the art up on the screen as well. Here <laughs> oh. we go. So you can I see think. it even clearer. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, like. Did you already have that book, like, ready to go? And, like, they pretty much looked it over and said, yeah, we're going to go with it. Like, what was it like back then when you, or did you just come up with it on the fly?
1: My story is a pure tragedy, um, even though it does have a happy ending. Because what happened was is that Tokyo Pop at that time, I found a notice on the internet saying that they were, you know, looking for international artists when I was just browsing the internet one day. And I was like, well, what's going on? It's like, uh, I did some research, and it says that manga is very popular in America. And I'm like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? It's like what man? is probably like what, what are you talking about? I was in Hong Kong at that time and just happened to see that notice, and my head kind of exploded. And they say you know looking for anyone to submit. So I actually had different ideas at that time. I was looking to draw um, a Sean and an action fantasy kind of story because I'm actually a big shonen fan. I'm big into Dragon Ball, you know, Yu um, those kind of stories. Not typical for what a girl to be, uh, you know, for a, not the kind of typical stuff for a girl to be into, but that's the kind of stuff I love and I still love that. So uh, I kind of came up with a story that's um, a, a kind of just based on a Chinese ghost story or something and it's just an excuse to draw a lot of action, a lot of supernatural stuff. And so um, I submitted that to Tokyo Pop and, you um, I had no idea what I was doing because all I did was shove a bunch of, you know, um, drawn pages into an envelope and sent it. And they came back to me and said, you know, please submit a proper pitch next time. And I was like, oh, not that I knew what a proper pitch was. But apparently there was expectations. There are ways you you do to, you know, you have to do to um, get things properly submitted. So I did some more research and I began writing the pitch. You know, an idea is like this is what my story about. This is what the characters are and themes and, how long it's going to be, yada yada. So I was rejected, okay, for my first submission, and then because they blatantly told me, "Look, this is nice and all, but we're looking for an audience of teen girls, you know." So if you could do something like that. So I went back to the drawing board and decided to write a story about a pair of twin sisters in a kind of romance setting in high school, okay. And um, that was called I think that was called Twin Side or something. I don't really remember. But I submitted again and they were like nope this is not what we're looking for and I think I submitted one other thing I don't really remember but I was rejected three times before they felt sorry for me and they finally said look you know why don't you draw a haunted school story and have some crusty psychic teacher or something like that and so I was like okay I'll draw uh, uh, you know haunted school story and um, that became the dreaming so the twin sisters that was from the romance thing that I submitted that uh, got rejected became the leads in this haunted school story, and uh, that was how it all started. So um, it was I felt really it felt really unfair at the time because uh, I had a bunch of people uh, that would hang out on a um, messaging board called Zodoma I think Zodomi or something like that that was by uh, run by someone who was already uh, working with her as a manga artist. And so we all hang out there and we talk about submitting to Tokyo Pop. And everyone that I knew who submitted around about the same time as I did, they all got approved on their first go. I was the only one who got rejected. And I didn't only get rejected I didn't get rejected oh my gosh, f- once. I got rejected three times. Eventually, um, should I try to was... hit in the core? Yeah, it's like it makes you wonder, <laughs> like, what did I do wrong? Like, is my art not good enough? Do I suck as a writer? It's like well, just what is wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a terrible experience to have for the first time, but actually a good one in retrospect, because um, if you get rejected the first time, um, you you can learn from that process. And you learn from the whole pitching process, you learn to refine your ideas and pitch them better. And I think you get a little bit overconfident if you get accepted the first time as well. So I think mentally it was devastating at the time, but in the long run, it prepared me for what it was actually like to be uh, pitching to creators and working in, in publishing, because working in any creative industry is absolutely full of rejection. And it's amazing that, um, you know, um, people get rejected dozens of times. I mean, I just got rejected like three times and that was devastating. But I guess my point was that other people got accepted right away and I didn't. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so that was... um that was my experience. And it like things did not go well from there as well, because um, I think maybe because I was Australian and I guess Tokyo Pop being an American company tends to think of Australia as the Midwest of the Midwest of the English speaking world. So uh, if people just forget about you or they think you're from some kind of backwater. And so I didn't get even get my contract until three months after everyone else got theirs. And I was really worried. I just like sat around waiting for my contract until I contacted the um, editor again. And they said, oh, we just completely forgot about you, sorry. And that's when I got my contract because <laughs> I because they forgot and I had to remind them and I wish I didn't wait two months because I thought, oh, what's going on? You know, am I, am, I, am I dropping me? Like what's happening? Should mm-hmm. have asked her. Oh, yeah, so that was another lesson learned. Sometimes you just got to um, not be so scared, I guess.
0: Oh, yeah, like the whole rejection. No, I, I, I get what you're saying. You know, like, I, you know, one thing about, I guess, rejection, is I mean, I even hear about like stories like with creatives where they have submitted things and they don't hear anything back at all. So at least mm. if you're getting something back, it at least means that somebody thought you were worth looking at, you know. But they, yes,
1: but I also have to say that um, that was at the time when Tokyo Pop wasn't being swamped by submissions. They, would ju- mm. they just started out their call out. People didn't really know about it. So because I was I think I was uh, probably a uh, cut above some of the other artists that submitted to them. And so they wanted to keep me around because they were interested in commissioning something from me. It's just that, you know, it's just my the, my ideas is like, they don't love them or whatever. And um, so I would say that uh, afterwards, from what I could tell from people who submitted a year or two after I did, is that they didn't get a reply because they were Tokyo Pop by then had a mountain of mail in their uh, mailroom that they just they had nobody to sort through it because there was just so many submissions coming through. So for me, um, I might have re- gotten rejected a number of times, but it was a matter of timing as well. I got my foot in the door early, and I think luck accounts for stuff like that. luck and timing a great deal.
0: Interesting. Now, before I jump back to these comments because we've had some a couple more comments come in actually, mm-hmm. you know I do want to say for anybody watching, make sure you subscribe and like this video. Let's make this video blow up and go crazy. you know, so go ahead and like this video, share this video around. You know, let's really bring in the questions, because this is an opportunity right now, people, to be able to learn from a legend. So, um, (laughs) with that being (laughs) said, uh, let's move on to the next question I see here in the comments. Um, Imaginos TV, we'd like to call your iteration of the uh, the industry OEL 1.0. What types of things do you think OEL 2.0 should learn from you guys? Well, that's a very very long
1: <laughs> answer that i could give i think one of the mistakes that uh but anyway i'll try and trim it down which is as much as possible i think one of the mistakes that the early oel artists made is uh, just pure desperation and ignorance of how the industry actually worked and um i don't want to say non-stop bad things about tokyo pop because they're not the first to come up with this kind of strategy but they were what you might call an ip farm and uh it that kind of um it kind of company structure comes straight out of Hollywood and they're all about buying up intellectual property properties and then putting it on their um, balance sheet and saying that this is how much our, our company is worth. And in these kind of situations is that these companies, even though they may produce books, is that they are not like traditional book publishers where they are interested in selling books. They're interested in um, selling the rights to some kind of big movie like Men in Blank or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm -hmm. And then making a fortune from that. And, you know, that's their whole business model. And they make a lot of promises to artists who, particularly when you're young, is that you think that, I know, um, several thousand dollars is a lot of money. You know, people like that, you know, who are young and they don't really know how the business works and they haven't been in and out of the grinder, then they um, end up accepting contracts that they really shouldn't have. Now, in my case, I think I had an idea of what Tokyo was was going for but I didn't know the scope of it so I had no idea that even after their company kind of shut it down their publishing department they would refuse to uh, give the rights back you know to, to that but there's some good news uh, on that later on and I'll talk about that um, afterwards is that um? so my advice to the OEL you know to crowd is that if you look at what happened to a lot of the creators from the um, the first generation of creators, is that a lot of them signed all their rights away for literally peanuts. And in retrospect, I was lucky because I was just given a genre to work in. It's like, yeah, you go, you go work in, um, you know, do your horror school stories, like whatever. I didn't have any emotional attachment to this, as opposed to other people who was like, this is my story. You know, the story I always wanted to do, and they submit it and they got approved. And it's like, uh, it's their... It's their baby, and then your baby is now being held hostage by some company who refuses to release your baby back even after uh, they've, uh, you know, shut down their publishing um, department. So in my case, I was lucky in that I didn't have any emotional investment, but other people, they were really, really devastated. And there was really very little that they could do to get the rights back. On the other hand, I did manage to get the rights of the dreaming back Uh, save for the streaming rights and that's because a company in australia a publisher a new publisher has decided that they want to publish a dreaming and so they negotiated with uh, us and they bought the rights back yeah so that was an amazing thing that just happened recently yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, that's like party but come on learn from my story that was in 2005 (laughs) it's now 2022 (laughs) like what does that tell you it's like i do i do have um emotional connection to the dreaming after all you can't Help, but have one after working on it for three years and the characters well. the story isn't completely finished either. And I have to you know, rewrite some of it for it to be re-released again, which is what I'm currently doing. But uh, that's probably what I'm saying is that um, back then I took the contract knowing how bad it was because I felt that at that point in time in my life, I had no options. You no, know, there was no social media yet. It was 2005, I don't think Facebook's even appeared. YouTube hasn't appeared. TikTok obviously hasn't. So there was absolutely
0: nothing. Actually, I think two thousand five YouTube did appear, but that was like the first year it appeared, like that. Mm-hmm.
1: that. I, I heard from a uh, heard about it later on from someone. I did a I did workshop at a library, and some kid told me, "Hey, have you heard of this thing about YouTube?" And that's okay. when I first ho- heard of it. So I, for me, it was later than than most people at that time, probably because I was you mm-hmm. know, working. Once you're out of
0: high school, suddenly you use. That was before Google Apple, owned Google, Google it, Google and it things. was more independent.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So nowadays, uh, people have so many other options to get your name out there. Uh, Back then, we didn't even have um, these uh, pirated manga sites where you can just, you know, go on and read free manga. We had to, you know, pirate manga of IRC, uh, IRC chat. (laughs) <laughs> so you were, you were at the, in these chat, um, chat channels where people were just, you know, there's a queue of 50 people trying to download three megabytes of manga <laughs> and you're like, you know, 51 in queue. You know, that was what exactly. it was like to pirate manga back in, you know, the dial-up modem days. So I, my, um, the possibilities that I had were so, so limited. And, again, Australia had no, you know, manga on the bookshelves. So I felt I had absolutely no choice at all. To, to then to sign this thing for me to actually finally get a job so I could actually tell people that I was employed in some some way, I guess, even though being a manga, um, any kind of artist means that you're self-employed, uh, particularly a manga or comics one. Yeah, so that, that was what I would like to tell people who are still interested in drawing um, Western manga, is that uh, be very, very careful about what you get involved in when it comes to publishing contracts, because uh, if you look at the first generation and what happened to them, you might never get yours back to be honest once you've signed it and these these people they're not necessarily interested in making money off your um uh, manga either that's just more about reselling their company at a higher value because they've got all this ip
0: yeah Yeah, at least that was a scam back then yeah (laughs) Yeah. even now for like people like care about a lot about like companies care a lot about ips and everything everybody wants to build up an ip Mm. somebody would hold it you know if they can you know because then you never Mm. know later on they might be able to sell it so yeah, the
1: standards um, gotten so. a lot higher though because um, too many scams of these have been pulled back uh, back into the early noughties and all that. Because oh. some of these, uh, if you don't exploit an IP, it makes no money, you know. So that particular scams kind of senior, you know, has has kind of run to the very very end of what's possible, but uh, it still happens, you know. So um, to be careful.
2: I mean, going going back to it, I, you you mentioned you know le- learn from how I did things before. And I mean that brings us back to pretty much a, a lot of our other uh, you know other guests on here where it kind of came back to uh you know kind of the answers that OEL really is looking for is to look at the look look at your history, you know, here in the OEL community specifically. You know, look at how you how you all did it and uh and you know a lot of the other old heads as far as basically, you know, where, where they messed up and where to go with things. Uh mm-hmm. you you mentioned you had no roadmap. You know when you started this, and it it reminds me of a lot of folks that I that I seen that uh you know in the OEO community and even even ourselves to an extent where, you know we're you know you start this and you're like well, I know how Japan does it or I know how uh you know you probably look at YouTube videos and whatnot but you're like where, where, where do I go from here?
1: Yeah, exactly. Back then, um, I didn't I didn't know anything about copyright. You know, yeah. that was uh, the, the tragic thing. And there was nothing online about copyright or about how the publishing industry works. Nowadays, we have lots and lots of resources about how publishers work and how publishing industries work. And it's not it's not fun to learn about these things, but I think it's necessary for me because I've gone into self-publishing and I still work with publishers. And so I do kind of both. I work with publishers and I do self-publish my work. And uh, so one thing that I felt is, feel is very important if you're going to be one of these people who do both or even just do self-publishing is that you really need to understand copyright and how to use it. I can give some great examples of how ignorance can actually cost you stuff. And I was very lucky that to have someone pointed, point me in the right direction so that I didn't lose out on what could be just something lucrative. Because if you're doing um, manga or any, any kind of uh, creative work, is that uh, one way to make money is through licensing. And they can come in the most unexpected ways. So I'll give you an example of how my ignorance almost killed some good money that uh, came to me. So I was doing a um, short story about um, the book that made me. So that was the theme of the book, and it was for charity. It was for an Indigenous literacy foundation in Australia. And so we were putting this book together by Australian creators, talking about which book it was that made them want to become a writer or a creator or whatever. So for that book, for me, it was actually Black Jack by... (laughs) Tezuka. <laughs> so right, my. So, I wrote a story that was a mix of pros and comics because that's something that I do do as well. Um, so I did the story based on that and that was published as part of the book that made me and because I was, wasn't paid anything for it, it was charity. So it was sent to various places and yada yada. And randomly one day, because I wasn't paid for the story, so I own the rights to the story. So the publisher Alan and Unwin came to me and they said that this big educational publisher in the US wants to use the, your story I don't remember what it was called, uh, j- let's just call it Blackjack Story. I wanted to use the rights of Blackjack Story um, for their uh, testing, the standardized English testing. Now, I didn't really understand what they were saying because um, apparently America has these big standard company that does standardized testing and stuff of all these subjects. And this company wanted to use my story. And I was like, okay, well, that sounds nice, medication. or just use it. <laughs> okay, that's what I just said in the email. Mm-hmm. And the Alan and Unwin lady said, look, don't do this. What you should say is that you want $400 okay, for them to use your story for five years. Now, that's licensing, right, mm-hmm. is that they have the rights to your story for five years, and in return, they give you $400, and you sign a contract talking about what parts of the story they want to use but They don't want to use all, just certain parts of it. And it said so in the contract that I later signed. It's like, we don't want to use this section and that section, so I just sent the you know stuff to them. But I was like, oh, so that's what it means by making money by doing nothing. About licensing is that you have, mm. you know, you have this thing that you could license to other people, and you've got to be very careful about the kind of license it is, because it is a um, right to secondary reprint uh, license, meaning that there's a right of first reprint, which is what you use in magazines. Like the publisher that has the right to print to be the first person to print this story and make it known to the world, that's got a right of first reprint, and it's quite valuable sometimes. The entire Japanese publishing industry works on the right of uh, right to work first reprint. Okay, you see these page, page, page payments for in manga, that's what they're actually for. They're actually not for you to produce the manga, they're for the right to be the first to republish your manga. Okay, so um, for me, that was a right of secondary imprint and worth a lot less thanks to the internet because publishing on the internet counts as a uh, publishing as well. So if you publish on the internet, then the right, your right to first reprint is pretty much gone and everything after that is right to secondary reprint. So what I did was that I, I took the, I thanked the um, Alan and Unwin representative and I took their idea and I went to the um, educational publisher and I said, okay, I want um, five years, $400. And they said, ah, I don't want them to do the five years thing. How about I just buy it for lifetime and i just pay you $2,000. And I was like, yes, okay, that works since it's a one-off thing anyway. And this is the kind of story that very few people like, would find very few avenues for published, publishing anyway. So that was how I just got $2,000 just based on understanding what licensing is.
0: Passive yeah,
1: so income. Think, yeah, so that's that's what I mean when I say you need to understand copyright and licensing if you're going to be a manga uh, creator, because you, if you're in the English speaking world and you do manga, that travels really well. There's a lot of book publishers out there who cannot afford to produce their own manga in their own foreign countries, you know, so they like to buy the rights to the manga from other countries, and they and they pay you. You know, for work that you've already done, because they do all the translations and the marketing, and you know, they just want to make money off your work. So, for fa- like the dreaming had multiple um, foreign editions, but that was all done by Tokyo Pop. But these publishers, you can talk with them, and uh, if they're interested in your work, then you could just approach them sometimes and say, "I've done this and this." So, because our uh, Fable Kingdom, um, this fairy tale inspired by has a the image on yeah, the screen. Has, yep, that's from book three. So Fable Kingdom has a Czech edition. So this is from the Czech Republic. And it's a hardcover for some reason, you know. So I was paid a fair amount of money. They did all the translation, which is actually a lot because it's a mix of Frozen comics. Yeah. So I got some money based on that from something that I've always done. And uh, the good thing about Fable Kingdom is that I own all the rights to that completely. So uh, I could actually um, approach other publishers that are non-English speaking and ask whether they're interested or not in this case I was approached by the Czech publisher Um, but here's another example of licensing and how if you're a manga artist and you create manga you could shop it around to um, international publishers and see whether they're interested because um, if they don't because it is it's very expensive to create manga and if it's already been created then yeah you know some some of them might be interested
0: so how do you how do you suggest that people who are wanting to know more about like you know licensing and stuff like let's say I'm just like I'm I'm only an artist or I'm only a writer and I'm just like I really don't even want to invest the time into really like having to do all these types of research can you point me in one particular place that kind of can teach me what I need to know to protect myself you know and to understand licensing like do you do you have any recommendations
1: there there are a lot of YouTube videos you know, that teach you the basics. Like I'm not uh, like, first of all, I'm not giving legal advice cause I'm not a lawyer. Oh yeah, so of course. someone who is not <laughs> a lawyer cannot give legal advice, but there are so many other online tutors and online websites and online uh, websites for free that teach you on YouTube and stuff about these basics. Because what I'm talking about is nothing complicated. You're not gonna be an intellectual property lawyer. It's not that, okay? But you need to know the basics and there are good books that teach you how to think of your IP. And um, one um, metaphor that people like to use is that your property is a bundle of sticks. You know, each stick represents a certain kind of uh, spin-off property. Maybe you can, this is the rights to the eBooks and this is the rights to the print book and all that. A single book can be spun off in multiple ways. For example, with the Fable Kingdom um, book that was the Czech version, that was for print only. The contract itself specifically said it didn't do eBooks. You know, if they wanted to do ebooks, that would be a separate contract, right? But most people don't realize that is that print books and ebooks can be spun off as separate contracts. You know, but people don't realize that because most publishers, when they offer ask you for the rights, they would go, "Oh, print and ebooks, and all languages for the rest of the universe." You know, in Pluto, they could they could actually say that in their contract. You could actually push back and say, "Well, no, I'm going to you know print books only," or you can negotiate. Okay, it depends on who they are, though. The bigger the publisher, the less they're willing to negotiate with someone who's small. But uh, I think there's plenty to be um, said for smaller publishers these days. You don't always have to go with the HarperCollins, the Random House mm-hmm. of Shishas. You don't have to go with that. Small, Smaller publishers are a lot easier to work with. And if you build a good relationship with them, you can get far. But you've got to make sure that they're actual proper publishers. Okay, in that there's a lot of scams in this area, a lot of people yeah. who have no experience publishing anything at all. And then they mm-hmm. want this, like, I want to publish your book. It's like, yeah, but who are you? You <laughs> know what, what is
0: your track record? Mm-hmm, exactly. How
1: long have you existed? 50 you've existed for like um, five months is like, that's a bit, you know, you don't know how well these people manage. Yeah, You don't life.
0: understand the industry, you know, at that mm-hmm. point.
1: Yeah. You do want someone who's been publishing for a while for the dreaming, the publisher that brought the dreaming back, they're a new publisher, but they're an, um, they're, they're an imprint of an existing one. So this particular company has been independently publishing horror uh, anthologies and books for quite a long time, and they're prose fiction publishers. So they have a distributor. They you know, distribute their work internationally. They're a small publisher, but if you run well, these exist a fair amount. And so I want to point out that the Dreaming actually landed itself a pretty good home because apart from it having a larger imprint that's been ongoing for many years, it's also a genre imprint. So that's something to think about when you are a... Um, looking for a publisher is that publishers who just say, I'm going to publish comics rarely do well, in my opinion. And from what I've seen in the past 15, 20 years is that if you want to be a publisher, you're better off. You can publish comics or prose or whatever it is, but you're better off choosing a genre that has been around for a very long time. Now, romance is one of the ever-popular ones, obviously. That sells like hotcakes romance. Horror is another one that is very specific, and uh, there's an audience for it. Uh, fantasy is a bit broad. You might have to be clear clear about what kind of fantasy is that you're doing. There's detective fiction, you know, crime fiction, mystery. I think that would probably be a better genre to to market your book in. So these are some of the things you want to think about when you are creating your own work, is that uh, does it fit into a particular what, genre and how easy it is because um to market a genre, because some genres are very easy to market and there is an existing audience for it, others
0: less so. When I think of... Um... When I think of horror, I like instantly usually like think of like Junji Ito and I see how many mm-hmm. collections like, for example, like, you know, over here in, in the States, we have like this uh, media, and they publish like, um, A you know, Junji
1: like Ito
0: books. yeah, you know, and it's all these different collections that they have. So it's like pretty much all these stories, these short stories that he has and they can kind mm-hmm. of put it out, you know, and it's like, you know, repackage it or whatever, you know. So when you're saying yeah. that, it just makes me think of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, Junji Ito, like. In my opinion, Junji Ito, he's a little bit overexposed in the West and it comes to a Japanese horror creator. I mean, the Dreaming is horror. Uh, that is what is c- classified as. It's actually Lovecraftian horror. So that's a guy with a long following. I know some—I um, know a lot of people may not know who Lovecraft is, but uh, he, he does have an established... H.P. Lovecraft. Following. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does have... A, it was Lovecraftian inspired. And he was also inspired by an Australian um, story called Picnic A Hanging Rock, which is actually very famous. And so Picnic Hanging Rock has been around for over a century. So it's a story about a bunch of schoolgirls who disappeared in the Australian bush at the turn of the century, about 1900, something like that. And it's a very famous Australian story because when the book came out, it wasn't exactly clear whether it was a true story or not. You know, so the the author kind of played that up and people were like, oh, you know, so it became something like cottage industry in Australia. So Australians most definitely would have heard about *Picnic at Hanging Rock*. So, this is like a, the *Dreaming* manages to be an Australian theme story, which got it into schools and things, where which otherwise it wouldn't be because it's otherwise it would be a straightforward ghost story. So, having an Australian component may, means that it manages to get into the education department. And uh, there are funds, film funds in Australia, that is like if you're, you're doing a movie that is Australian, you know what hashtag Australia? Who knows what that means? But *Picnic at Hanging Rock* is, uh, or something like a *Crocodile Dundee*, you know that is unabashedly Australian, then you might get better funding. So that's why there is some some interest in schools and amongst the film industry in this story, because it's considered Australian and that means automatic government funding. Now, the thing about um, the dreaming is that um, that is something that could be leveraged if you're doing a, a creative uh, own work. Uh, but of course, in terms of the um, horror component that we were talking about, the Dreaming has an advantage is that it is horror, but it's nothing like most Japanese horror. And that was something that I factored in when I created the Dreaming is that it was very—it's a very feminine story. It's got a lot of um, flowing dresses because I like to draw ball gowns, and everyone likes to look at ball gowns. And it was very European, and that's the sort of exactly the sort of story that would actually would not exist in Japanese manga. There is like no way. Like uh, something like that would make sense in the Japanese manga industry. And I've read a lot of Japanese horror manga and they kind of, kind of come into, you know, there's Junji Ito and then there's Ghost Stories, you know. So this is something that's very different to traditional Japanese manga.
0: So that actually brings up a good question. So when I think of like current, actually, what is your opinion on current OEL? I want to make sure like the current day, like the new creators that are coming out before I even like before even ask
2: before we jump to another subject, uh, sticking with this current one, that, that the st- your your story in particular, uh, you, you said it's a happy in between middle. Or it, so is it is it? I, I'm just kind of curious. When it comes to horror stories, you know there uh, there's a fine line between uh, you know what's great and what's kind of just like all right, you're using the tropes a lot. I mean, are, are we talking a bunch of jump scares or are we talking drift?
1: Well, when it comes to books, I don't um. Uh, when it comes to manga, at the very least, or the dreaming, I don't go for jump scares because I think jump scares work in movies. And everyone hates them anyway these days. If you're a horror fan, then you probably think jump scares are the most annoying things in the world. I <laughs> certainly do. <laughs> uh, that
0: would be if, first, yes.
1: Yes, yeah, so um, I don't approve of jump scares in movies, but that's a, a film problem. Uh, for me, when it comes to writing manga, I don't rely on disgusting scenes. I mean, there is a place for that kind of thing. What well, said the Japanese might call guru you know, where you have blood and guts everywhere. And there's a tradition of Mm -hmm. that in Japan, but I I don't go for that. I go for um, more psychological horror, you know, that all that feeling of dread or atmosphere of, you know, the whole English ghost story when it's uh, there's a lot of fog and then there's a lot of woods and then there's a lot of something down the end of the hall, that that kind of feeling. And I think that works better for what it does because um, the dreaming, I don't find the dreaming particularly scary. It's meant to be, you know, more dark, it's more like dark fantasy if you ask me, but I call it horror because um, that's how most people, it was originally marketed as, as something dark, you know. So um, that kind of horror, I think, has the chance to find a wider audience because when you think about schools, they don't like it if you start to intestines all over the panels, right? You know, right. schools are going to look at it and say, you know, I, I think all this, you know, boobs and all this, you know, intestines flying is not good for the kids. And so because the dreaming had so little blood in it, that probably helped it get into schools because uh, schools do care about such things. And not just schools, the average reader, if they pick something up and it's like too gory, it's probably not their thing. Whereas right? this is more like a more traditional kind of mystery, kind of horror story where you're trying to solve the mystery of um, the, the vanishing schoolgirls. Like the original Picnic of hang Rock, part of the reason why it became so popular was that it was about someone vanishing. We don't know what happened. And then there was a big question mark. So there's terror to be found in that, but it's not kind of traditional um, kind of horror movies where people there's a, you know, a slasher or something like that. Of course, movie horror is, is its own thing. But uh, I don't know if you've seen a movie called The Vanishing. That's um, the orig- um, uh, European one. There was a Hollywood remake it. which sucked. Yeah, but um, the, there was a movie called The Vanishing and it was about, um, oh, I don't want to spoil it. If you look it up, I think it was from Denmark or something like that. But uh, that movie you know, had no violence, chilled everyone to the book core about what happened you know, in that story.
0: It's yeah, so nice. Creepy Feel can do it. Mm.
1: Yeah, right. yeah, that's enough, you know, for a lot of people. Sometimes people just like to read dark stories, doesn't have to scare them. Yeah. So, but so, horror, I think, is, as a genre, has a huge leeway, you know, for people to play with. And if you're talking about aficionados of the genre, and I I am a horror aficionado, I do not know a fair amount of it. If you want to write in horror, you need to be familiar with a lot of these kind of uh, genre conventions. And hit the history of it, like you know, stuff like Lovecraft. He always has fans, so the people with expectations about what, you know, the lore and all that in his stories. So you have to know that to be able to write in that um, area and uh, have people recognize it.
2: Yeah, interesting. I'll Taking it back to uh, the question you were you presented before, Evan, how do you view the uh, all your audiences? Well? Oh yeah, sorry, got
1: completely off track i
2: actually
1: don't i actually don't know that much about it i'm actually really interested in it because on facebook i see there are groups of people who are doing their own manga but i don't know where to find it unless it's you're talking about webtoons now i know a lot of people on webtoons i assume some of it can be considered oel manga but i'm actually not so sure because um because the format of webtoons is i read a lot of webtoons i'm doing a phd that's on digital partly on digital comics and um so webtoons is part of that but I look at the webtoon format, where it just scrolls down the page and all that, and I wonder. I think sometimes I see very interesting experimentations there, but I also think it loses something with without the page format. But that's mm. just my opinion.
0: So as yeah, far as I think as they went Ill- with more about, of a manhwa approach with it, if I'm not mistaken mistaken that's why it's kind of more longer you know because it's more made for like cell phones i think is the reason why they set it up that way for web websites
1: yes absolutely mm-hmm. um i could go on a lot because i did it like i said i did a phd on it i am doing a phd on that but um as for why that happens but uh, there's a lot of men who are in traditional printed book format as well so mm-hmm. um It actually transitioned that manhwa industry from the 90s transitioned into that vertical scrolling format, and I don't think I don't think it's kind of improved the reading experience if you if you ask me, but it is a um, specific thing that people associate with uh, webtoons these days. Good, bad, I don't know. But that's the extent of the OEL I've seen. I do wonder how these people make money, though, because while you have Patreon and you have – if you manage to get into their, you know, Webtoon original thing, then you get paid something. But my understanding is that these deals are the, you know, new equivalent of the Tokyo Pop deal in that if you manage to get into the Webtoon original, it's going to be like a 360-degree deal like they have in music where if you're Beyoncé, then whoever bought you owns everything about you, including your name Beyoncé. I'm assuming it's one of those deals. So.
0: Yeah, they well, did I seen any of a it. few manga series. Um, what was it through Crunchyroll? I think there was a uh, God mm. of High School, um, um yeah, Tower of the, God. Yeah, Tower of God, God that was the
1: one. the new Solo Leveling. Like, I think these are chosen by popularity, which I don't think is always a good thing because with manga you can always calculate how many books that it sold, and that's a very very straightforward way of figuring out how many people would pay money to see some, to see something. Whereas if you're talking about webtoons, a view is just a view. Could be botted it could be someone who doesn't care you know so uh-huh. i think the way that people um measure metrics on platforms like webtoons are a little misguided sometimes because just because i gave you an eyeball for 10 seconds doesn't mean that i would ever pay money for anything that is related to your um comic or your you know web, your webtoon in this case and uh, so i have not been impressed by the quality of the webtoons i got uh, um adaptations i'm being a bit mean here but um, the truth is, I read all of them, and I'm just like, I don't, I
0: don't see it. You know?
1: I'm, so, uh, I'm I I actually glad
0: it. you mentioned that, because like, and this isn't, you know, I want to make sure I say for anybody who has their stuff on Webtoons, I'm not shaming about because there's a lot of great work on um, yeah, Webtoons. Yeah, there I've is. There's a lot of good anything. stuff. Like I got to give, you know, uh, Rohigashi a big shout out. You know, half mm-hmm. of the crown she has on Webtoons. Make sure you check it out. Just got to throw that out there. But um, in any case... Um, when it comes to, like, Webtoons, and, or not Webtoons, when it comes to, um, um, like, current-day OEL, do you think that maybe there's a lack of, because um, like, obviously you haven't looked at a lot of it, but at least with Webtoons, do you think there's a, maybe a lack of, um, of um, maybe diversity in terms of the type of content that people write? Because you mentioned horror, you know, and some other genres before that, you know, people can use to try to, you know, push, but a lot of people seem to be coming, always coming out with just fantasy stories nowadays, at least from what, what we see. So I don't know. What do, what do you think? Um, I
1: remember, because I have to read a number of academic articles on Webtoons, and there isn't many, to be honest. There, now, that's a whole kettle of fish about comic studies in uh, the academia. But um, I read the um, uh, article from someone who studied Webtoons, and in a, a mathematical sense, meaning that they got a bot to drag through all the Webtoons and divide everything up into genre tags. And it was, by, it was very clear to me, from the moment you look at that graph. It's like romance is by far the biggest, most dominant genre on webtoons. I have a feeling that up to 80% of the site is something like female readers and a particular kind of female reader. Now, romance being popular is no surprise. I mean, the entire publishing industry would collapse if it weren't for the romance category. But my point is that if you want to stand out on webtoons, you understand the audience is mostly young women looking for romance or BL. You know, so if you want to stand out, I think horror is actually one good way to stand out because that is one of the least popular genres on Webtoons. But you are always going to have horror readers on that site. And uh, if you are able to do something that's a bit of a, you know, has some kind of strong opening or some kind of strong premise, uh, you could really stand out. Sweet Home did. That got a Netflix adaptation. So at any point in time, there's always uh, someone who probably will do a, a punch-out horror story that will really, really stand out. But you, but you have to be careful how you do it, I guess. And uh, fantasy probably is also, like, if you're talking about fantasy, because I said, I said before fantasy is a very broad genre, and right. that is one of the problems, is that your fantasy is not a genre so much as it is a setting. If you mm-hmm. talk about romance, that's a genre. You know, romance, fantasy... That's everything. That's pretty much everything on Webtoons. It's romance fantasy. Traditional swords and sorcery fantasy, you might have to be clear if you're going to clarify what kind of fantasy. If you're talking about mythological fantasy, now that's something. Now, is that adventure, though? You know, so that's why I don't really – I'm not fond of the genre tag of fantasy because it is a setting. And same for sci-fi. Like, sci-fi is probably one of the worst-selling categories in fiction fiction. Not because, people will, not because people don't like the setting. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a sci-fi setting. Like, like it's fantasy setting, it's also a setting. But my favorite form of sci-fi fiction is hard sci-fi. So very, very scientific, properly researched, sciency sci-fi, like real sci-fi. And that is the one that gets the lowest readers. So sci-fi as a genre, again, it's, 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 as a setting, again, may not be that great. And that's why I argue that romance and horror are some of the easiest genres to kind of put your stuff in because in, in some ways they're diametrically opposed and readers have certain expectations from it. So I think that if you are going to do something, you know, that is standing out on webtoons, choosing a genre that nobody is publishing in it may, may be a good strategy. Of course, I can't really guarantee anything. But I also think that a horror on Webtoons, because it's a format that's formatted towards shorter stories. I think short horror stories, a bunch of short horror stories might actually be the best way to go on Webtoons if you want to get some traction out of it. Because it is hard to sustain a long, an ongoing kind of a series that's based on a serialized format in the way that Webtoons is. You can do an ongoing series based on that format, but. the trouble with that is that when people read stuff in that format, they'll expect a jump scare every episode. And if you can't deliver, your audience would kind of dribble away. So, you know, it, that could be worth a try, a series um, of short stories and horror on webtoons. Because if you're going to even try, you know, <laughs> doing romance, it's like you're going to get swamped, you know, in in just like 10 seconds, you're going to get like completely swamped by all these
2: other people doing the same thing. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's so saturated with a uh, romance and so many different facets. I know, and, I mean, and for good reason. I, I mean, you know, you look at the real world dynamics. You know, kind of the number one topic on everybody's mind is you know kind of dating scene, relationship scene, or how it works in you know a lot in politics.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But um, there's a lot of Japanese – the thing is the Japanese market is segmented in such a different way. There's a lot of romance for men in Japan as well, and they do perfectly fine. But that's because they are published in magazines that have so, where people, readers have certain expectations. Webtoons, it completely lacks any kind of editorial hand. You know, it's just like, – if you're talking about the canvas aspect, it's just all fling it up there and let it just live or die based on its own merits, and sometimes things take off and sometimes they don't. Really, really good co- um, Webtoons get overlooked. By things that I think are completely mediocre. You know, mm-hmm. that happens in, you know, Japanese manga as well. But um, you could tell that there's not much editing going involved in a lot of these webtoon creations. <laughs> you know, so, it just makes the reading experience
0: kind of blah, to be honest. So I kind of want to center things. Let me center things back, um, kind of more, you know, make it a little bit more personal. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to know, sure. like, from your experience, you know, creatively, um, <laughs> do you find that it's more. Um, you're more successful maybe through, you know, like obviously having international publication or, you know, I also, you know, and I'm making a big assumption here, but I assume that you go to a lot of uh, conventions because you, you guest a lot, you know, you're asked to be a special guest quite a bit. Um, So do you find that there's more success like as a creative of doing that or being internationally published and like, you know, like having your books everywhere, or do you find it's more of a, um, or even having your work online? Like what do you think is like the most, what, if you get what I'm trying, where I'm getting at, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, how
1: do you position yourself amongst these three vectors, I guess? Um, I would say they all feed into each other. I wouldn't be where I am with the con- um, convention guesting thing if it weren't for being internationally published with The Dreaming. You know, it's been, I don't know, 15, 20, 17, let's say 20 years, and I'm still riding on the, on the coattails of The Dreaming. <laughs> and uh, it's embarrassing when you think about it, but that, that's the, the truth of what happened. Is like The Dreaming is actually still selling these days. No, which is why the publishers want to bring it back because it is still selling and i was like i'm actually really grateful for people who. i don't so see much.
0: that at all as like anything embarrassing that's actually that to me is amazing that's like yeah well i well, i am amazed too that means you have a memorable work you know which... yeah
1: and in that Tokyo Bob didn't even pub, like publicize it didn't even advertise the dreaming so whatever it did it did on its own and um It's still a bestseller in Turkey, do you believe? (laughs) It was a bestseller in Turkey back then. But um, that kind of created a launchpad by which I could kind of go to a lot of conventions as a guest, and I think being an artist really helps that. I think conventions want to see artists rather than writers, and so, you know, when it comes to who gets to be a guest at conventions, there is actually a very limited number of people you can choose from because I'm one of the very few writer-artists out there. Who is a woman? Because we do need some representation and an Asian, apart from all the white guys. It's like recently I was at um I don't remember which convention, but we took a, you know, picture of all the um uh, guest artists there, and it's like wow, what a sausage fest! And a particular, a very very white white sausage fest as well. So I was like, am I the only woman who is also a person of color at this convention? Unfortunately, yeah. So I would say that the representation issue has actually gotten worse over the years. Um, so that kind of frightens me a little bit because it means that. Very few younger people are entering this. Or if they are, they're entering it. They have nowhere to make a platform for themselves. Like, how do you get your name out there? And uh, it it is a struggle. And I'm not sure really um, why that is, because there has been some successful creators in Australia. It's just that I don't really hear about them from the same channels. And I wonder if it's because uh, sometimes people put a little bit too much stock in being internationally published. Because the thing about the Dreaming, despite it being still a bestseller in Turkey, and I got a book tour in Turkey back in 2009, it also got um, published in a number of countries that it apparently sank like a rock. You no, know, I did get a lot of fan mail from Iceland for some reason, but I know that it's been published in France, never heard about it from again, um, in Russia, in Germany, in Italy, Spain, like all these places got it, and Finland. But the truth is that a lot of it sank without a trace. And I think that's the problem with being the, the idea of being internationally published is that a publisher is going to put down your book there, hoping it sells. If it doesn't sell, it's going to sink like a rock. And there is like, you're not going to get famous from that. Maybe you've got some money. But to, do, to think that that represents anything more than just another momentary kind of a passive income stream would be a mistake. You know, you have to keep rolling as a creator, coming up with new things, new ideas, things like that. I mean, the that's dreaming, I'd place. like to continue it because I have a good story, a good side story I want to write right after Volume 3, you know. So uh, that's, like, motivation for me. But I've done other things since then that I think have been way more successful. Like um, I did this non-fiction biography series called Women Who Are Kings. So this is based on Hatshepsut. And
0: it's pictures. very different
1: what I normally do. It's Back to Colour. And, um, yeah, here we go. It's the Queen Elizabeth the F- who, Verse. it's back to color and uh, it's nonfiction. and I do a lot of research on it because uh, the middle one Wu Zietian, about the female Chinese emperor that was done for a master's degree at Macquarie University and I did all this completely out of a personal passion and it's not, not the sort of thing most manga readers would be into or comic readers and I just did it because I wanted the world to know about these women but this thing I've sold 2,000 copies of it just by sitting at a convention you know, and by putting it online on Ingram Spark, which is a self-publishing platform where they, um, because Ingram's one of the world's largest book distributors, so I just slap it on there and just do nothing. And it sells on there too with me doing no advertising. And I've done no advertising for this series except let people know that it exists or sit at conventions. And I'm like, you know, sometimes you hit on things that you really enjoy and that there is a market for. And that's exactly what sometimes people don't, like when people think, oh, you know, there's always, I'm always talking to comic creators at Comic-Con thinking like, how do I sell more books, sell more books, sell more books? Like that is the number one concern of all comic creators out there. Well, I did this purely for fun, did not expect it to sell. I've sold a lot of books, you know, did nothing. But this is exactly the sort of thing that most comic creators would never think of doing. And my friend looked at this and said, oh, you know, he really likes it. A lot of people do because uh, it's probably research and the story is enjoyable and all that. And it's short, you know, it's only 30, 30 pages. And... Uh, They say that, look, your book, these books don't necessarily appeal to comic readers. You know, they appeal to normies. And that's why it sells so much compared to some of my other books. Mm. You know, it's not it's not a fun reality to be had,
0: you know, but um, that's the truth. Kind of pulling new people in the comics.
1: Yeah, there is – when you're you're different, if you're being different, it's like the same with Fable Kingdom. It's a mix of uh, prose and comics kind of format. I did it, did no advertising. I've sold 1,000 copies of the whole series at 20 bucks a pop. So assuming that I make $10, probably less, of each book, that's still a fair, you know, $10,000 of just sitting around at cons doing nothing. And then just sometimes I think when you're different to other people, you do things that other people definitely would not do. You know, then you get some kind of audience that is A is actually very hard to point to pinpoint, but B seems to come out of the woodwork from all kinds of other places. And I have no what kind of like no idea what kind of people likes to re- like to read this kind of stuff, but they exist out there and they exist in large numbers. You know, so it's just it's a matter of trying to reach them. Like uh, for stuff like um, Habshetsu, it's in school libraries, it's Scholastic, you know, border because it's educational, obviously, <laughs> compared to some of the more wilder stuff that people might get. You know, you might get in them. Um, Graphic novels is that uh, some some of these kinds of stories, even though no no comic artist dream of you know doing this, it does manage to make money, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something that I think people forget a lot. Um, so a lot of people, when they create, particularly for the younger generation of mangaka, they want to emulate their idols, you know. They want to do the I saw, I saw someone mention Jujutsu Kaisen, which I love. I love Jujutsu Kaisen, mm-hmm. you know, but. It's probably not a good idea for you to do a Jitsu Kaisen clone. You know, it does not make you unique. You probably won't find a market. That's the reality of the situation. Sometimes you might be able to find a better market and better audience if you just do something completely different that no one else would do. Yeah, the past less, less traveled to reach undiscovered audience. I think that's a very, very good way of putting it. It's a very, very tough road to walk though. Like I said, when I started walking, I had no expectations. I was absolutely convinced that no one would be interested. Like, I'm, I'm shocked that, the you know, Fable Kingdom sold as much as it did. And I don't really try that hard to sell it either. People just come up and buy the book, you know. And same for the, um, you know, you question,
0: series. when I look at, like, even, like, you know, your art style, how you're able to, like, you know, change it up. You know, when I look at, like, mm-hmm. how diverse it is or whatnot, I mean, you just, I mean, I don't, I mean, it's, it's not only impressive, but it's one of those things to where I th- I'm, like, I don't know, would you say that it's important for even like from an art standpoint for people to really have like a strong foundation, you know, to be able to really have one?
1: Absolutely. The reason why I had to change out my art style was that people just tagged me as the mangaka and that's all you can do. It's like it's like this is all you can do. You're just a manga artist. You're unable to do anything else. And still, when you look at the art from um, the women who were kings, it's very definitely children's book inspired. It doesn't really. It has a few big eyes, but you know that happens in tintin as well. You know that that's it's not really inspired by manga art at all. But people still call me. Oh, it's very manga. It's like how <laughs> it's not really manga at all. But that's what happens when you are known for drawing in a particular style. Is that people slap a tag on you and that's it. It's you're stuck with it permanently. And this has been terrible because um. Manga, when you're talking about as a publishing category, manga art sells really well. But Western manga art, because of Tokyo Pop, they've completely poisoned the well. And a lot of publishers, when they see that you're a Westerner doing manga art, they will just label you and just just put you in a box and says that this person, we can't do this person because they do Western manga. And that's what Tokyo Pop did is that they put out a lot of books too quickly, a lot of it was terrible, and it kind of um, made a lot of people think that people who manga in the West are a bunch of idiots who cannot, you know, put a straight line together and that was a tag that I had to live with for so many years and my reason for exploring different kinds of art styles was so in the hope that, you know, I could uh, kind of get out from that manga tag and that's why I tried drawing in so many different kind of other styles and kind of teaching myself and how to look, make my art look different but it's been something like 20 years and I can tell you that I still can't lose the manga tag. So now I've come, come to accept it and it's like, okay, fine. Right, you could call my, I mean, you, you, you guys are clearly blind, but I'm not going to argue with you, okay, but I will, you know, continue, like, polishing my art and trying out different things, because at the end of the day, despite it, me being motivated um, by trying to shake off that manga tag, is like, um, I've actually grown as an artist a lot, because of my attempts to kind of shake off the manga tag, because it was so toxic. No, but I've grown as an artist and it's made me a better artist so while my motivations weren't exactly you know self-improvement now it actually turned out really really well for me I work for a um, uh, department of education doing a series of magazines where they do children's book illustrations and I do a fair amount of work with them um, at, the, at the time being so um, that's an example of me I don't do any manga style out there I wish I had some to to show you But uh, a lot of it's very children's cartoony kind of art style and very, and I've gotten used to drawing to that style as well. So suddenly I've got two styles that I could use under my wing, like even, even, um, even though that wasn't, it's not what I wanted to do originally, but it's kind of only benefited me and broadened the kinds of clients that I can have when I do freelance illustration. So a lot of the time people who contact me and ask me to do commissions, they specifically say we want manga. So that tag will never go away. But that tag has actually been a burden when I try to work with traditional publishers because they're like, oh, you know, and I'm like, no, this is manga. But it's like, oh, they see one. It's like the 1% rule. It's like the one, the one drop rule, you know, and, and it's like you a little bit manga. It's like, yeah, you're manga. <laughs> yeah, so that was how I was treated by a lot of traditional publishers. And that looks like it won't change. At least manga sell selling really well now. So
0: <laughs> Interesting. Okay. You know, a lot to say there, you know, but. Let's, I want to run through, because I know we're a little bit almost over our time, actually. I want to run through these questions that we have here for or comments from the, the um, comment section. And then we have two final questions that we would like to ask you. Sure. Um, actually, our two traditional questions. Um, let me see here. Where did we leave off? Um, Imagine a CD uh, 2.0 has some homework to do. I already um, crashed through that stained glass window. Just met someone who has Webtoon original deals today at Comic City Comic Con. Let's mm-hmm. see, preach on Queenie Chan about those views, preach on. I agree with not being impressed by a lot of what I see in OEL these days. Ouch. <laughs> Love that candor, Queenie Chan for the win. That's really cool. Let's see here. Let's get through some more of these guys. Uh, I thought maybe we might have had a question or two in there, but I don't see mm-hmm. one currently. Mm-hmm. If have any questions, um, please feel free to drop them. Appreciate all the comments, guys. Now, before we move Thanks. into these last two questions, guys, go ahead and give a thumbs up to this video. If you're just coming in, subscribe. Of course, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, you know, of course, we, you know, we really enjoy you guys, and you know, we have more interviews just like this one coming up. Uh, but let's move on to the final two questions. I don't know. Do you want to kick it off, Nico?
2: Yep. So. Who's your rival in the industry? Or do you have anyone that you were competitive with at uh, any particular point
1: in time? Uh, no. Back from my Tokyo Pop days, uh, there wasn't really anyone doing what I was doing. And everyone was actually too busy struggling with their schedules. So there was an artist who was a friend of mine, Svetlana, who has gone on to working with Yen Plus. So she's still working for Yen Plus, but most of what she's doing is kind of middle grade, you know, the babysitter's club kind of stuff. So I, I'm sure she's doing well for herself. But... um. We haven't spoken for a while, and she's busy with a child now, so I'm not really sure what she's doing. But she's doing great, you know. <laughs> no professional jealousy there at all. <laughs> but um, apart from that, people in Australia. But oh yeah, my Svetlana. So she lives in the U.S. She's originally from Canada. But um, in terms of Australia, there was someone who was working with Seven Seeds. Uh, that was way back in the day, Madeline Roska. So uh, she draws really well. And she was actually very popular on Webtoons for a while as well. But I think she's kind of given birth to two kids as well. So she's kind of stepped back from Webtoons. She's no longer doing Webtoons as far as I know. And that was several years ago. So I'm not sure whether she's still doing comics in any way. I do still see her around on Twitter. But, I, you know, I'm friends with them too. I know a lot of people in Australian scene. But our rivals, someone who inspires me to do better, someone who's publishing the same avenue as I do, is like not really, because it is a lonely path because the path that I walk is so strange. You <laughs> know. doing the comics prose thing, doing nonfiction biographies of famous queens, they've done really well with them. And now getting the dreaming back. Yay! So I'm still so excited about that. And it's like uh, it's like I don't know anyone who's walked a similar path. And um, while it's much easier to have a rival if you're working in the traditional Japanese industry, um, and it would be nice to have someone like that, even then you you wonder, you know, it's one thing to have a to have a dream of someone that can inspire you to to push yourself to do better, and you compare and contrast yourself. But um, I guess it's, things are different
0: for a Western manga artist. You know, it's funny. Like whenever we ask that question, it's always like a very like some people will say like rival. And then some people who will say, yeah, I have a rival. It's like, oh, it's pretty cool, like, to always hear, like, different contrasts with it, like, what it means. So usually sometimes we frame it, and you, you already answered it, like, even if it's not a rival, someone who empowers you, essentially, where you kind of, in a positive way, motivate each other, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah.
1: But the things we, we do have grown so different, you know, I've never done mm-hmm. middle grade work before. I'm not, I'm not interested. I don't think I'll be good at that. But, um, yeah, well, whatever she, but that's her choice, you know, to do that.
0: Interesting. Okay, you know, not sure where end went, but um, I'll go ahead and kick this last question off anyway. Um, so, you know, of course, you've been a big pioneer in the industries, you know, so far within your career, you've inspired many of us, you know, across the world and everything that you've done. But just to take things a bit further, what is your end game? How do you want your whole career as a whole to be remembered like when you're when you be when you're old basically and you've kind of you know you're at your end what is what do you what is your end game what do you envision you know your legacy to essentially be
1: i've envisioned my end game in many many ways but uh so i'm just going to give it a go and it probably won't end up like this um, I find that I find a lot of uh, joy in doing series, like the Women Who Were Kings series, you know, that was fun. And I like to continue doing work in that area because I really enjoy the research process and, you know, the, the just the whole, you know, making it happen. And the dreaming, I think because since I've gotten it back, you know, given the, gotten the dreaming back and I could continue the story in the way that I originally wanted it to. It's like, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, if this series seems to be proven, at least people seem to like it, I'd like to continue that universe and see where I go. But I've got to be careful about how I do it because um, of course I'm older now and drawing manga is really backbreaking work. And so I've got to consider how I tell a story. Just ask Yoshihiro Togashi. Yeah, I, I haven't got – my back problems aren't that, at that stage yet, but I'm you know doing Pilates and stuff to make sure I never get that bad and um, because it is a very, very real thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I like to continue doing my – like I haven't gone back to my original, like, comics, uh, just full-on manga without any of the pro stuff, full-on manga and doing a series. I haven't done that for years because uh, I've done, you know, the nonfiction series is what I've been doing for the past few years. So i like to go back to writing that since I'm older and I think I've got better life experience, um, just figuring out how to produce a story and just do something that give it a little bit of time that, will, that I will think is a good story. Because the thing about working with publishers and even with the Fable Kingdom stuff is that um, I felt that I wasn't given enough time to create a story that I was happy with and being a very impatient person that probably played, something, played a role in that. So I, I would like to continue the series that I'm doing. And I think that, uh, I mean, the Queen's book and the Dreaming has already left a mark, at least in in this country. Yeah, so I'd like to actually continue expanding that because there's money to be made there Put it, too, put it back over in the States. <laughs> Bring it back. Yeah, over. I would like to do that. That's uh, the publisher that I'm working with for, for the Dreaming um, has uh, American distributors too. So that would probably
0: come back. Interesting. Okay, well... You know, with that being said, you know, what is the, aside from, of course, Fable Kingdom, is there any other project that we should be on the lookout for? You know, you just mentioned about, obviously, the dreaming, but, like, is there anything else that we should be on the lookout for coming up or coming out soon?
1: Um, I'm working on the fourth book of The Women Who Are Kings, which is about Catherine the Great. And there's a list of women that I want to go through. It's only eight, um, about eight of them in total, so it's not that long. But um, the Dreaming, I like to do a side story called Unicorn Skin. You know, uh, that's a kind of connected to the main story. But um, after, you know, the, the Dreaming is republished in book three, I think that's when I'll get to work on, um, on the fourth book for that particular side story. And I think having a good um, self-contained story is a good thing. Uh, for it to bridge onto the next part of the series, because the characters in that should actually appear in later on in the series as well. So I think that might be an interesting way to experiment with uh, telling stories in this brave new world. Because um, right now with um, the dreaming, that was done 15 years ago. The technology has changed a lot since then. I've started uh, messing around with, um, you know, laying the pages down for unicorn skin. And I'm using Clip Studio, and I have just noticed how Fantastic! Some of the functions Clip Studio has, and I've been using it for years. But I think most people kind of stick with, the, you know, Clip Studio One Hundred One without exploring its more um, its other functions. But I would say technology will probably make my life a lot easier because there's brushes, and then there's three D modeling that you can use. And I actually three D model. I use three D model backgrounds for Elizabeth as well. So the Elizabeth book that was done uh, all of the backgrounds in the book. Not all. Most of them were actually three D models, but you can't really tell. You know, so I think technologies has gone a long way. So I think that would, come, you know, really, really help um, comic and manga production. And I've noticed um, that Clip uh, Studio also has a um, convert tones and lines function if you go for the uh, X version, the most expensive one, and they allow you to convert photos into black and white and uh, tone versions. Now, I've tried that. Like this is a kind of a, a wonky process, but I have noticed that they do that a lot in manga backgrounds in that they actually merge photos together with hand-drawn art and there's, you know, there's this particular way that you do to do, that you use to make it look well. And so that's what I'm hoping to do is that as a way to alleviate the pain of drawing backgrounds. Yeah, so uh, we're, we're coming to that phase where a lot of technology can actually save a
0: lot of people. Okay. And I
1: think a Facebook user asked a question.
0: I was just gonna say, actually, one last question for you. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, like how do you keep up your workload? What are your tips not to burn out?
1: Um, I set a very simple goal for myself every single day and I make sure I have one day of the week where I'm supposed to have one day of the week where I absolutely do no art. And I don't know, I don't care what I do that day, you know, it's just that I do not touch the drawing tablet whatsoever, like nothing. And I think that that's usually a Sunday, but, um, if particularly if you work another job, you need to have one day where you do not think or work or touch anything that is art related because that day is like when you have your... Peace of mind, you know. So tips to not burn out. Everyone's different, of course, you know. But managing your workload, setting yourself a reasonable goal every day. For example, I just have no time to draw Catherine the Great right now because um, it's just I'm just doing so much other work. But recently, I set myself a goal is that I draw a panel a day, you know, for Catherine. Whether it's uh, fully finishing it because it's the art is not that complicated because I've laid out the entire story already. Yeah, so I kind of set myself, hey, so I'm going to do this many pages, this this much a day, and then that's it. And just I think one of the problems that people have when it comes to burning out is that they think of manga manga production as, an, uh, as a sprint rather than a marathon. And so for most people, their problem is not that they um, can't sit down and draw for three days straight. That would kill you. Don't do it. OK, everyone who's tried it never got their work finished anyway. The problem is not your energy, the amount of energy or the amount of desire you have to get something finished. The problem is always people don't know how to run the marathon when it comes to creating manga. Is a marathon? I mean, when you think about marathon, you're running slow. OK, you'll have planned how you're going to do things all the way through. And it's going to go on for hours and hours in, uh, in manga terms. It's going to go on for weeks and weeks. And you've got to plan yourself and pace yourself properly. People who burn out are the ones who try to do too much, you know, within a short amount of time. Okay. And this actually comes right back to things like uh, a conception of ideas and uh, how you write your story. Like for me, I'm at the stage of writing where I write a story and I've just got an idea in my head. And if I put it down on paper, I pare everything down to the bone. Anything that is not necessary to the plot or characterization Gets the bin. No matter how much how much fun it is, you know, to, to have these characters screwing around and having fun at any particular time. Oh, I really love this scene. It's so cute, but it's not necessarily part of the story. It gets cut. now that's how I write these days. And that's so yeah. So I pare down a story right to the the the, the marrow. You know, and that's uh, when I decide that, and then I make the choice of whether I actually want to make this story or not. I mean, when you get to like my age, I'm not young anymore. Let's face it is that I just have a limited amount of time. So, okay, I can only do the ideas that I think are the absolute best. And 90% of my ideas are crap, you know? And I think when you're young and you're just starting out, you're so exciting because you're so excited because you have so many stories. I've got 10, 12, 20 stories, all these stories I wanna do is like, and they all seem really good. But what you need to do is to sit down, sort it out, write it down, think about it. What story is A, gonna get you most excited B, get your readers most excited. That's probably more important than getting you excited because you're probably excited about everything you do. So what is the sort of story that will get your readers most excited? The kind of story that people would pay money to see, you know, the sort of stories that um, you could actually do a reasonable short story of and then extend it if you want to because some stories you can do that, others you can't. You know, have a th- think about all these ideas and choose what is the A-tier stories. And you would find that in a pot of about 100 stories, like maybe one or two will be eight And what you don't want to do, particularly if you don't want to burn out and then don't waste, want to waste your time, is to not go for anything that is derivative. You know, do not do anything that if you look at it and say, oh, you know, this is popular, this genre is popular, I'm going to do that, or I'm going to do another Naruto or something like that. Nobody wants that. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Uh, I think I'm just telling you to be original. And that's going to be ridiculously hard. Like, I know that's a very, very stupid advice because it's, everyone wants to be original. That word
0: again, mm-hmm. original yeah. highlight.
1: But let's face it, if you can't be, if you don't have an original idea right now, you got to make sure you do a short story that has a great ending to build your reputation. Do not waste your time on your magnum opus that's going to be like 30 years in the making. You know, you're better off sticking to a short story that will build your reputation. And have something finished, so you could show someone. Look, I finished a story. Check it out, and it's like fifty, hundred pages or something at most. And they're gonna read it because it's short. <laughs> you no, know, they'll probably read it and think, Ah, oh, this person can write. Well, you know, what's your next story gonna be about? Because if you don't have that, you know, you see, if you don't have a finished story that is good to show someone, it's like, what's your proof that you can actually write? You know, and that's what a lot of young writers forget is that, oh, I could, you know, do this ongoing story. I'm gonna do my favorite manga. Is like. Yeah, but when you look at when other people are going to look at it, they're going to see a manga that's unfinished. is probably all over the place in its beginning chapters. You know, that would be most webtoons. And they're going to be like, is the rest of it coming out? Oh, this is, like, not very focused and, like, not really interested. That's actually, actually the point where I read, stop reading a lot of webtoons. It's by Chapter 8, you haven't told me what the main story is. The main thrust of the story yeah. is I'm out. You know, and that's most people. You know, mm-hmm. so if you look at the dreaming, you know what the story is about by chapter three, and if you don't, you're you screwed up, you you're messed up somewhere. You know, so that's something that I want to remind people is like always have something that's finished to show other people and make sure it's good, because then that's proof that you can actually write a decent story, at least one decent story, because if your next one sucks and that's a problem too. But that's one way to build a um, uh, to build a career is like a build a reputation. Yeah, because that's what, that's what keeps people from coming, from coming back. You know, they read a story of you, like, oh, even if they don't like the story on how it ended, if it ended properly, then they're going to say, oh, okay, you know, I, not my thing, but, you know, I could see there's talent there, you know, if you've got your next work, you know, let me read it. And that's how people are these days. And it's like uh, if you're talking about stories, dime a dozen, I'll go on Webtoons, there's a zillion, many of them unfinished, many of them unfocused in the beginning. You these days, if you're going to write a story, you're going to make sure you grab the reader by the throat from chapter one, on, and it kind of has to keep going, has to maintain that, you know, that that level of them, um, you know, grabbing the throat, right. all along. Because otherwise, they, you're going to lose people's attention, and that's the reality. I and mean, good storytelling is meant to do that anyway. And one thing I also like to suggest as a way of practice is reading bad manga. Like, Sean and Jump does this axe maneuver continuously. And there's a lot of YouTube videos that talks about Sean and Jump's axe maneuvers and who they axed. If you've got the Sean and Jump app, that's just $2.99 in Australia, it's cheaper in the US. It's like, go and read all those Sean and Jump cancelled manga. Because I've read all of them and I make it a point to read all of them and like, it's the exactly why they got cancelled. Mm. You know, you got your favorite Jujutsu Kaisen. Read that, and you can tell that it's not going to get cancelled quite early on. You read the other cancelled manga, and you're like, I could see why this got cancelled. Mm. Very often, it's derivative. It's the story's all over the place. <laughs> you know, the characters are bar. You, you know, the art. Well, art's usually good if it's Sean and Jump. But um, you could you could actually you can learn a lot from that process. And I I do this because I feel I learn a lot from Sean and Jump and how they murder people, like murder their, you know, their stories continuously. Because uh within ten chapters, if you've got no direction, I'm sorry. It's like your story, your story's done. No, rare rare is it that you can get a story that can survive past that. Doctor Stone did, Undead Unluck did, mm-hmm. but they're really, really exceptional cases. And Doctors St- like both of these manga turned out to be fantastic, but um
0: that yeah, barely a <laughs> they barely skated by.
1: Barely skated by and Undead Unluck is just, you know, it's it's getting <laughs> It got getting finished, and Doctor Stone. I was surprised that they, I think they allowed Doctor Stone to go on for as long as it did, despite his sudden switch in story, was because of the artist. No, it was mm. one of the really well drawn ones in Sean and Jump at that time, and there wasn't that many competitors. Com- yeah, like, Boichi when it comes to art wise. You
0: know.
1: Yeah. So, so you know that's the only reason because anyone else would have axed it, given yeah. what it was.
0: Yeah, you know. Yeah, like to be his name being too.
1: afraid to don't be afraid to do short stories and make sure they're good. Because a short story, I have a collection of short stories that is way from back from my 2000, 2010 days. You know, it doesn't sell much at cons, but sometimes people, you know, buy it and they say, oh, I kind of enjoyed your collection. They're all good stories with good endings. And they're like, oh, you know, they come and check out my other stuff. You no, know, that's how you get other people to check out the rest of your work. They buy one work. They like it. It's like, okay, this person can write. You know, then I'll read their longer works, you know, invest more money. And if that's good too, then, you know, you've got yourself a fan maybe.
2: There you go. There you have it, ladies, gentlemen, guys, girls, these and sirs. Those are unique pronouns out there. Understand something? Queen Chan here just dropped down so much advice and knowledge. We we went ahead and let this show go on 20 minutes longer. Like I hope y'all y'all had your notebooks open and everything to know Please, please, this video like about four times and dissect a lot of what we just say here because so much was highlighted in the oil community certain certain current time issues certain stuff that uh that you that you can take away from for basically helping you get out of a rut if you're in it or uh helping you to actually progress you don't know where to go all the way back to where you can look to actually refine your craft like like, like you like you just said uh miss Queenie chan you know look at the fail, fail works in, in Shauna John. I I got one. That was great. There
1: is just one last question. What manga out right now should be cancelled or should be cancelled? That was my Facebook user. I'm just looking at what I'm reading in Shonen Jump and I always read the new ones. I'm reading Super Smartphone right now, Ruri Dragon and Aliens Area. That's the new ones I'm reading. I'm absolutely certain Super Smartphone is going to be cancelled. Okay, because Super Smartphone, if you read it, it lost me with the high-rise thing. It actually had an interesting chapter. But, right, but they got some kind of high rise storyline in chapter two and three and it just lost me immediately and I'm thinking, this is not going anywhere. Yeah, Rory Dragon is a slice of life, so it's about a girl who actually is half dragon and it's like, eh, yeah. it's a cute story, we'll have to see where it goes. Alien's area, eh, it does not look great at the moment, it looks very men in black, it has the same concept. You know, uh, this, uh, the it's going to be a battle manga, and battle manga is very hard to stand out from the crowd these days, <laughs> especially when you're up against Jujutsu Kaisen. So unless it does something really interesting with it and it doesn't look right now, right now all the characters look very, very battle shorn and tropey-esque sort of thing, unless it does something really different in the... I read up to Chapter 3, so unless it does something really different in the upcoming chapters, you know, um, then I think that it's not good. And because if you're talking about Cancel, Sean, and manga, which I think was good, but I could see why they couldn't go on forever. Like Siren is a good example. You know, it's like good stuff there, but just not unique enough, you know, whether it's in the setting or in the power system. Yeah, so I think you can
0: learn a lot Yeah,
1: from reading Cancel, Sean, and Jump Manga.
0: Interesting. Well, Thank you so much again, you know, for coming on and enlightening us today and, you know, just talking about your journey, you know, um, you know, we really all appreciate your time today, you know, again, like, you know, we know we're sitting, you know, in front of a legend right now, so, you know, it's really appreciated. <laughs> um, very quickly, can you actually uh, tell us where, you know, anybody out there, you've shown us a lot of work, where can we find these works, where can we fi- follow you, if for whatever reason, I'm somebody where I'm like, I don't know where to find any of this stuff.
1: I'll just go to QueenieChan.com. It's my website. Yeah, so QueenieChan.com is good. I'm on social media. My social media is listed on my website. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I've abandoned some of the other stuff like DeviantArt, so just rely on the main three. Um, And uh, you can find my books on Amazon as well because uh, the service that I use IngramSpark to do my self-publishing, it distributes to um, Amazon. So you could just go on Amazon and search for Fable Kingdom or the um, Queen's books and you could just buy them off there.
0: And we're going to put those links down there too, guys. You know, they're not there right now, but they'll be there after the stream. So you guys can, of course, go ahead and check it out. So you can go ahead and, of course, you know, pick up the, the Dreaming when, of course, it's back out in print, you know, and then also, you know, any of the other copies, Fable Kingdom, of course, you know, you know, look at that art, you know, we can see, you know, look at that art, look how amazing it is, you know, and a great story. So make sure you go ahead and you pick up a copy of that. Um, also, for next week, our next get, or actually not next week, two weeks from now, our next guest will be uh, Tani Andrews. She's going to be coming on talking about Seeds of Doubt. That's her latest story coming out. So you'll want to make sure you guys go ahead and check out that interview that we got coming up. That's in two weeks, guys. And then, of course, you know, in the next two weeks, we have our next episode after that as well, which that one I know you guys will also be excited for. Uh, with that being said, did you have anything else that you wanted to say in before we left? Uh
2: Everyone, you know, let's uh enjoy the, enjoy the summer. And uh, again, like 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 Queen Miss Queenie Chan was saying here, you know, really really take, take take a moment to reflect on uh you know what's going on with the current OEL scene, how, where you can refine yourself and stay original.
0: Oh yeah. Also, this episode will be on Spotify in a couple weeks. So for those of you Spotify listeners out there, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel to also check out the videos when they're live. Um, with that being said. Thank you guys for watching. We'll see you later. Catch y'all. Thank in. you.